Good morning. Good morning. Hey, here in live, um, I've already got to talk to you guys a little bit, so I'm Dave. Uh, but uh, down in uh, Bearden, out in Roan County, over in Amped and Blend, good morning to you guys online. Good morning to you. If you've been checking us out online and uh, you haven't had a chance to visit, visit us in person, we'd love to see you in person. That'd be awesome. Uh, we're going to be in Exodus for the next two weeks. We're going to be in Exodus, uh, and then uh, for the month of November, we're going to spend in Psalm 23, using quiet waters to kick off our journey through Psalm 23 over a month. That's what we're going to be up to, so if you're wondering where we're going, that's it. But in this series, we've been talking about reconstruction building faith on relationship because that's what God does. God builds our faith based on our relationship with him. And it's not just how God works today. It's how God worked throughout history. It's how God works throughout his story. Ultimately, what we need to know is that this, this relationship what we need to know today is that that relationship with God that we're talking about is only available through those who have faith in Jesus. The only way to enter into relationship with God is through uh, entering into a personal relationship with God by confessing our trust, trust, faith, same word uh, in, in a biblical sense, placing all of our confidence in Jesus, that, that he is uh, our life, that we can trade our old dead lives for new life in Christ. That's how we enter into relationship. And that takes us to our big idea for the weekend. And that is faith is built on experiencing Jesus's reconciliation and renewal. That's what our faith is built on. Why? Because that's what relationship is built on. We enter into relationship when we are reconciled to God and we get a new life in Christ. It's the only way. And you're like, Dave, you get that out of the Exodus? You betcha. So here we go. This reflects the character of God. This reflects how God has always worked throughout history. And so uh, as we've been through journeying through the book of Exodus, I, I want to begin with just a reminder. Because this week is the perfect illustration of how we can run into a problem of reading an ancient book uh, in a modern kind of way. If we think that we can just read the book of Exodus in a straight line, we end up discovering that we miss the point. And here's what I mean. Exodus is a theological story. Is it historical? We believe that the events in the Exodus happened. I want to be clear. We believe the events in the Exodus happened. But they are not told to us the way that we would tell modern history. The story is not recounted to us in a straight line. Why? It's a theological story. Because if you just read the book of Exodus in a straight line, it seems really random. Confusing. But all of a sudden, if I look at the story structure, if I read it like it's a story because it's a story, then I begin to see things that I wouldn't see otherwise. And once we, we start reading God's story as a story, you can't read it any other way. You see stuff you never saw before. You see patterns. It's called types. You see, you see the way God works, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. And when you start to begin the way that, understand the way that God works through the Old Testament, as you begin to read the New Testament, you're like, this is the same. 
This is the same. He's using the same patterns. He's, he's retelling the same story, just in a different kind of way. It's better than I thought it was. It's not just like, oh, I need to understand a little bit of that old part. I know I need to understand the story of God. And so as we come to Exodus 32 through 34, you're like, that's a big chunk for us to cover in one weekend. Why would we possibly cover three chapters in one weekend? Now, we could do it different. We could do it different. And if we did it different, we'd miss the point. Here's what I see happened. And this was a... a a professor of mine once upon a time, he said, hey, here's what happens. New, new preachers tend to preach too big. And old preachers tend to preach too small. If you, if you are like, okay, well, let's just go through this verse by verse. Let's just go through this verse by verse. You missed the point of Exodus 32 through 34. If you don't set the big frame first, and if you've been through the book of Exodus, we're going to see something maybe you've never seen before. And that's why, why I want to begin by laying out this structure. And that's why you have the theological structure of chapters 25 through chapters 40 there on a handout. What we see here emerge is... God gives Moses plans for creating sacred space that Dave talked about last weekend. He talked about the Eden space. It's the, it's the space where heaven and earth collide in the imagery of this temporary traveling temple that's, that we call the tabernacle. It's a temporary structure that the children of Israel will take with them. And as they travel, they, they will set it up at every place they go along the way. It's the way that they're going to take Mount Sinai with them. They're going to take the place where heaven and earth collide with them as they journey from Sinai to the promised land, the sacred space. So that's what we see is instructions on how to create the sacred space. And then that section ends with Sabbath instructions. And then when we get to chapter 35 through chapter 40, it begins with Sabbath instructions. And then it goes through... Uh, the actual construction of this temporary traveling heaven and earth space that we call the tabernacle. But in between, something happens. In between, we see that, that, that the children of Israel lose their minds, that they freak out, and they, they are like, what is going on? And so if you try to just read this thing in a straight line, and if you've been trying to figure out um, how many times does Moses go up and down the mountain, and what's the flow of this, and how does this happen chronologically? If you're trying to figure that out in Exodus, good luck. You'll be the first one who's ever figured it out. It's not the point of the story. It's a theological story. It's what it's revealing about who God is and the way God works. It's about revealing the nature of who God is. And, and, and God is telling us more about his character as the way that he interacts with the people like Moses. And so actually, chapter 32 connects back to the end of chapter 24, where we see Moses enters the cloud and goes up the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. 
And then we see God interact with Moses. He gives him all these instructions in chapter 25 through 31. And so as we pick up in 32, we're linking back, we're hyperlinking back to 2418. And it begins with, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. In the margin of your Bible, right there, circle golden, and in the margin, right, cast metal. We'll come back to that. But if you may already have a note in your Bible. It may say, may have a little one, and down in the margin it says Hebrew cast metal. It's a cast metal calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. In the midst of not knowing what's going on, people do people stuff. That's what we do. We do people stuff. What do people do? We do what we want to do, how we want to do it. It's called rebellion in the Bible. Uh, Another word for rebellion is called sin. Often when we think of sin, we think of bad stuff people do. When the Bible talks of sin, it's called rebellion. In fact, some of the stuff that the Bible calls sin, we might not even think is that bad. Like the first sin. How is it bad that Adam and Eve would want to have the knowledge of good and evil? How is that bad? In and of itself, that's not bad, is it? Well, it's evil if it's directly contradicting what God told you to not do. It's called rebellion. And there's a penalty for rebellion. The price for rebellion is death. That's the deal. As you enter into, as you attempt to enter into a relationship with God, you can either be part of the relational agreement that he's created, or you can rebel against it. And here what we see is, um, as God entered into a relational agreement with them back at the beginning of chapter 19, and he says, okay, here, you're, you're now going to be my people. And he entered into a covenant. A covenant is a, a relational agreement. He saved them. And he said, now here is, is the relational requirement. And he enters into what we could call the Sinai covenant or the Mosaic covenants. It refers to the same thing. And, and they now enter into this covenant. And God says, but there's, there's restrictions. This covenant, this relational agreement and, and then in the next week, Tim covered that that, that relational agreement required that, that the children of Israel did and didn't do stuff. And first and foremost, that, that they would have no other gods, that they would worship Yahweh, the, the, the God of the Bible, that he would be the one that they worship, and they wouldn't create gods for themselves, that they would, that they would be loyal in their love for him. And Moses isn't even gone 40 days, and they're already off the program. They're already like, we're out. We're going to invent some stuff. We don't know what's happened to him. 
So let's do this our way. And God tells Moses that he's ready to start over. He goes on here in chapter 32, and he says, I'm done with these people. They are stiff-necked people. I'm done with them. They are rebellious, and I'm ready to start over with you. But here's what happens in Exodus. The Moses that we see here in chapter 32, this isn't the Moses that we've been seeing throughout the rest of the book. There's been a transformation in this guy, because here's his response. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. That's Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. He points all the way back to the promise to Abraham. Remember that. And then what we see is you're going to have a chance to, to, to go through this whole story, chapters 32 through 34 this week and to live it out. It's really kind of comical at times. And, and as it goes forward, you're going to see that Moses is actually going to offer his life in exchange for the, the, the children of Israel. He's going to offer to say, okay, God, take me. And here's what we see. That, that in the midst of rebellion, God provides an intermediary. It's what he does. God provides an intermediary to stand in the gap of our rebellion. This is what God does. God provides an intermediary. So by saying what Moses says, God, God is in, in effect saying, um, Moses, I want to start with you. And how many of us would be like, okay, that's a pretty good deal. Okay, let's do that. Because these people, they've been driving me crazy. In fact, God had already said, Moses, these are your people. And Moses, they're not my people, they're your people. And he'd be like, I'm done with these people. Let's be done. Can, okay, yeah, let's do this. Let's go. But he's like, no, this, this is part of a bigger story. And God, here's what's going to happen. People for all time are going to say that you abandoned your people. You brought them out of Egypt just to kill them in the desert. God, your, your reputation will be sullied. Your reputation will be ruined. And he pleads to God and says, no, not this. Now, it is interesting because this is one of those, those verses where it says in verse 14, underline that verse, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. For people who go to Bible college or go to seminary, this is one of those verses that they love to debate. What's it mean that, that the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing to his people? It sounds a lot like God changed his mind. So does God change his mind? People be like, they love to debate this. 
Well, does, is God is unchanging, so how could God change his mind? If God knows all things, how could he possibly change his mind? And, and this is one of those questions that you never get to the answer of because it's not supposed to be a black and white issue. The Bible Project calls this kind of stuff meditation literature. You're not supposed to read it one time. It's supposed to make you think. You're like, I don't want to think, Dave. I just want, tell me the right answer and let me get on with my life. That's not the Bible. Many people approach the Bible that way. Just tell me the right answer and let me get on with my life. And God's like, no, 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 I want you in my story. Think about this. This isn't about the psyche of God. And people try to reduce this to be like, oh, this is, God is telling a story. And what we see emerge is there's this interaction with Moses in the role of intercessor, and he pleads out, and God relents. God changes his mind. That may make you uncomfortable, but it's right here in the text. He changes his mind. He goes a different direction because Moses cries out, he goes a different way. How's that work? No idea. Why does it work that way? I don't know. It's just what I see. And it's not supposed to be like a forever thing that I be, build all my understanding of God on. It's supposed to leave me in the mystery of who God is. But one thing that's clear, he listens to the intermediary. He listens to the one who's mediating rebellion. Folks, if you have a relationship with Jesus, if you understand the Bible story and, and, and the sense of I have a relationship with Jesus and Jesus has become my intermediary, this should start, start sounding really familiar. You should be like, wow, this sounds a lot like Jesus. It's supposed to sound a lot like Jesus. This is supposed to bring to your mind this future intermediary that God is going to give and as Moses then, he comes down the mountain, God, God tells him what's going on, and he comes down the mountain, and he's carrying the covenant on two tablets. Um, you've seen that portrayed as he lists a certain number of commandments on one, a certain number of commandments on the other. Okay. That's not what that is, okay? It's two copies of the same thing. He's given him two copies of a covenant, front and back, and he's come down now because that's what you did with covenants in the days in which uh, uh, Moses lived, and he comes down the mountain, and when he sees what's going on, he's angry, just like God was angry, and he throws down those tablets, and they're broken. Now, this is more than just a fit of rage. That symbolizes the covenant that they've just made is already broken. God got married, and they've already broken their marriage vows. And he's like, it's already over. We haven't even gotten started, and it's over. They didn't even get to the honeymoon. They went to the marriage ceremony. They went to the reception, and they, it was over. It was done. The wife left with another dude out of the reception. This is the, what we're supposed to get. This is the imagery that we're supposed to get. They didn't, even, they didn't even consummate the marriage. It's over. By smashing the tablets, that, that symbolizes that this covenant has already been broken. So what does Moses do? Moses cries out. Moses intercedes. 
And in the midst of that, God hears him. And God says, okay, here's the deal. I hear you, Moses, but there's going to be a price. And there's, there's going to be a price that requires death. And that death is going to be required. And we don't really understand the 3,000 people, the 3,000 men who died in the camp as the Levites went throughout the camp and, and they killed 3,000 people that day. We really don't understand who those people are. Those people may have been the ones who led in the worship of the false gods. But they may have been doing that. We don't know. But, but Moses says, who's on the Lord's side? And he says, those people come to me and the sons of Levi say, we are. They're the priests. And they go through and they do a cleansing of God's people. And for the first time in the Exodus, what we see is people start to die. It's going to go through the rest as the, as the children of Israel then leave Sinai and they continue towards the land of Canaan. What we see is the stakes in following God are very high. That those in rebellion have to pay with their life. And as Moses intercedes, it says in verse 35 of chapter 32 that the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf and the, the one that Aaron made. That We don't really know what that is, but God had said, hey, if you follow what I say, I'm not going to send any plagues on you, but they don't follow what I say. And so he sends some kind of sickness into the camp. And then he says, it's time for you to go. It's time for you to head out. It's time for you to leave Sinai and begin to journey. And, and then he says this, but I'm not going with you. I'll send an angel, but I'm not going to go. And then it says that the people mourned at this disastrous word. As we've been working our way through Exodus, we've been talking about that this is all about that Yahweh would be known and Yahweh's presence with his people. When we use that word presence, in a biblical sense, it's not talking about the fact that God is present everywhere. That is true, okay? Present everywhere. God is present everywhere. That's true. But when the Bible talks about God's presence, it's talking about the manifest presence of God, the tangible presence of God. It's the same thing we talked about last week. It's the dwelling of God. And, and Moses says, is it not the fact that you are our God? Your presence is what makes us different. So in verse 15, in chapter 33, he says, Yahweh, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, is it not your going with us that we, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Here we see the intermediary brings reconciliation and renewal. Okay? The intermediary brings reconciliation and renewal to our relationship with God. That's the role of the intermediary. Now you're like, okay, now this is really sounding like Jesus because it's supposed to sound like Jesus. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the better Moses. And it's not saying because Moses jacked it all up. Moses was faithful. Moses did what Moses was supposed to do. Moses played his part in God's story. And it was supposed to point us all along to the final intermediary. So it is interesting as they 
they renew the covenant. Now it's once again, okay, I'm going to make a covenant. We're going to renew this. Moses is told to come back up on the mountain. So bring some new tablets. Hey, make some new tablets. Bring them with you. We're going to rewrite this deal. And uh, we're going to enter back into this relational agreement that we have. And it, it, I just find this fascinating. This was just for free. In verse 17, he makes it really clear. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. Hey, I wasn't clear before. Let me be really clear. You could say, don't make any gods of golden. It's the same thing. It's, it's the cast metal gods. I wasn't clear enough for you. Don't make any bright, shiny gods. None of those. Let me be clear. When Moses came down from Sinai, after getting the two tablets, with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone. And they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him. And Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him at Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out, he, he and told the people of Israel what he was commanded. As we look at this as, as one narrative unit, as we look at this as one story, I'm not saying that we can't break it down into parts. It'd be really fun just to do a whole sermon series on 32 through 34. That'd be a blast. But if we really want to get the part of the, of the point of the story, if you don't look at this as one narrative unit first, you miss this. The shining face of Moses is God's provision. He is the one who's going to lead God's people into God's presence. The people said, we want it to be a calf. God said, I've given you an intermediary. His name is Moses. The shining face of Moses is supposed to bring to mind the shining cast metal calf that they made for themselves. Don't invent your own deal. Now in that, should we not be about idolatry? Yeah, absolutely not. We shouldn't be about that. But the story's bigger than that. Is that not super cool? That is super cool. But so what? <laughs> Big deal. I see all these super cool things going on. I listen to these guys and all these super cool things and read these books, all these super cool things, but then it always drives the question, so what? What's this have to do with me as a follower of Jesus living today? What's this have to me with experiencing that faith is built on Jesus and, and reconciliation, uh, reconciliation and renewal that only he brings? Moses pointed us towards the way God operates. And, and as we go into this week, into next week, as we conclude Exodus, we're going to talk about the idea that Jesus brought to fulfillment the law. Often what happens when we think of that, that Jesus brought fulfillment to the law, we, first off, we probably don't understand what the law is exactly, that we think of the law just as the rules, but it's referred to in multiple different ways, and we're going to try and bring some clarity to that next weekend, but, but what we need to know now is, is that Jesus just didn't complete all the, the, the technical instructions. That's not. Jesus is bringing fulfillment to the law. He's the one who completed the story. 
He's the one who fulfills the type that Moses presented to the people. What we're going to see is we're going to turn over to, to uh, 2 Corinthians. And Paul actually uses this a couple times as he writes to the church in Corinth in the letter that we call 1 Corinthians in chapter 10. He uses the incident with the golden calf to say, don't engage in idolatry. This should not be the first time that you've heard that, okay? That shouldn't be anything new. Don't worship idols. And, and we all have them. They don't look like golden calves. Maybe you have one in your house. If you do, get rid of that. But we, we make up our own stuff. And I'm not talking about the obvious stuff. I'm not talking about the worship of stuff, the worship of money, even the worship of other people. I'm talking about the way that we make up our own Jesus. I heard a guy this week, he's just riffing off on who Jesus is and who the Jesus of the New Testament is. And this is the way Jesus, like that isn't the Jesus in the New Testament. You just don't get to make it up. Because it fits your story, our job is to discover who is he, to live in relationship with him, to have the humility to say, I don't really understand uh, a lot of what, what and who he was. And my job is to go on the journey of discovering what that is, not just in the absence of knowing just to make stuff up. That's called idolatry. I was, I was, okay. I was watching because I'm, I'm very interested in the way that the teachers of the Bible right now um, are, are stoking fear that this is the end of days because of what's going on in Israel. They're stoking fear. And I was watching this one guy and at the front of their church, they have an American flag and a spotlight. Folks, that's called idolatry. That's idolatry. It's hitting you right in the face. If your Americanism is greater than your love of Jesus and people around the world, that's called idolatry. And it's smacking you right in the face. I'm sorry, I wasn't going to go there. I, I believe we're supposed to go there. That's idolatry. We got to wrestle with that. If we think that God is cool with that, he will humble us. He will humble us. We have to confess that and turn from it and go, you know what? My allegiance is to Jesus. And then is it good to be part of a group of people who live in community together? Yes. But it's down here compared to with my allegiance to Jesus. He's the one. I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. And that's such good news. And that has to do with what? It has to do with what Paul writes to the church in Corinth in chapter 3 in 2 Corinthians. And he writes about this. I was just going to give you a little snippet. This is long, I admit it, okay? Um, but I couldn't figure out where to cut it off. So I'm going to just read you this passage. He says, um, And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. It's a new deal. It's a new deal. It's the new deal that God pointed through the prophets that there will come a day where I'm going to write my, my instruction on the hearts of humanity. 
Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. We have a new relational agreement, and the new covenant that he's pointing towards is is in replacing the covenant that God established with Moses at Sinai. There are multiple covenants in the Old Testament. Okay, This one in particular is talking about the tablets of stone, the tablets given to Moses. There's a new relational agreement that's been put in place. Jesus has replaced the deal that Moses gave to the children of Israel. Jesus is this new relational agreement. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry ministry of the spirit have even more glory for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory so notice he's not saying it was bad he's saying it fulfilled its purpose at the time in the place that first relational agreement was fulfilling the place it was pointing towards something else indeed in this case what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that it surpasses it that surpasses it for if what was being brought to an end came with glory much more will what is permanent have glory So when you read that, you can't say that the old relational agreement, the old covenant was a bad deal. It was the deal that God had that would point people towards the new deal. And it was always going to be a failure and it was always going to end in death. We're going to talk about that next week. It was always going to end in death and it was glorious. That tells you how much more glory is associated with the new covenant. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelite might not, Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, this talking about um, the the. Old Testament, but in particular, the first five books of the Old Testament, when you read the Torah is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart because we have this new relational agreement with God through the indwelling Holy Spirit that is written on our hearts uh, that we belong to God, the, the, the The covenant is sealed by the Holy Spirit. We do not lose heart. The Holy Spirit assures new life in Christ and shines the truth of the gospel to the world around us. Now, many of us are are probably pretty familiar with this verse about freedom. This is one of those that we love to go to and we love to point people to now the, the Lord is the spirit, right? And where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. We love to quote that. There's freedom, there's freedom. But what do we have freedom to do? Check this out. There's more. 
In verse 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded their minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that we would be a people who remove the veil and allow the glory of God to shine forth. You now are free to be a follower of Jesus who demonstrates that you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You now are free to do that. That's different than I'm free to do whatever I want to do. (laughs) The veil's lifted. The glory of God is free now to shine through me into all the relationships that are around me. You see, our reconciliation and renewal allow the gospel to shine through us. The fact that we've been reconciled with Christ, that we are renewed in Christ, that we are indwelt by the presence of Christ through the indwelling Holy Spirit in us, that we live with God now face to face. The way that Moses entered into, and it says he talked to God face to face. When you read that this week, that's just a way of saying it. Like if you're going to go literal, it's presence to presence, but we wouldn't know what that was saying. So they say face to face. But when your presence is talking to another person's presence... When you're fully present, what do you do? You talk to a person face to face, eye to eye. That's what it's saying. When when Moses spoke to God face to face, it's presence to presence. We have that same deal. The indwelling presence of God now allows us to talk to God face to face. That we get to talk to him and he gets to talk to us and we're now free to lift that veil and show the world that we belong to Jesus and he is the light of the world. That's amazing. That's our freedom in Christ. Here in, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, This is one of those passages. You may read it a bazillion times, but if you don't understand the Exodus context, you just get spun into a circle because Paul's spinning people into a circle. But as we begin to understand the story of God, all of a sudden it gets clarity here. And we're like, oh, it's better than I thought. It's better than I thought. I'm now free to allow the gospel the good news of who Jesus is to shine into the world around me. So this week, you're going to have a chance as you engage in the live it out. um, We're going to ask this question multiple days in different kinds of ways. What does it look like for us to shine the gospel into the world around us? In fact, right now in all of our venues, all across all of our campuses, what we're going to do is we're going to give you a chance to ask God a question. And maybe you're new. You've never asked God a question before. You're like, wow, I don't know that I've ever asked God a question before. We believe the fact that we are indwelt by God, that God not only wants us to communicate to him, but he also wants to communicate to us. And he does that primarily through his word, but he also does that through his spirit in us. And he communicates us to in a way, in a way that we, that we get. And so there may be a thought that comes to your mind. You may be a visual thinker and there may be a a picture of somebody's face that comes to mind. There may be, um, maybe it's your workplace. Maybe it's the school you go to. Um, There may be something that you're like, oh, that's where, that's the relationship where I'm supposed to actually lift the veil and start talking about Jesus. That he's changed my life. Whatever that is. 
we believe the Holy Spirit will show you what that is if you ask him. And so let's do that now. Let's ask. Let's ask Jesus, through the power of the Spirit at work in us, to bring to mind where he's looking to shine the gospel through us. Jesus, would you speak into our lives right now where you're looking to shine the gospel through us?